Today begins part 12 of our journey through the book of Joshua. Part 12 begins here today, and our text for today is Joshua chapter 9, the whole chapter. But the first two verses of Joshua 9, I believe, will add some background information just rather organically to, to the story, to what's happened and is happening and what's taken place so far. So Joshua chapter 9, verse 1, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, that is to the west of the Jordan, the Transjordan area, that's on, on the right side or the east side, but all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, that is to the west in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. When they heard of this, now the this can naturally refer to the previous section, the floating pericope, Joshua 8, 30 to 35, the part of scripture that we discussed last week. But I think also contextually it can find its connection with chapter 7, the first battle of Ai. When they heard of this, So what we have here is this. We have this coalition of six kings who have come to wage war against Israel. But the interesting thing is Israel's reputation. Israel's reputation is such that according to Joshua chapter 2, 9 to 11, Rahab and the spies, she told the spies that everyone was afraid of them. Everyone doesn't seem afraid of them right now. In fact, after they crossed the Jordan River in chapter 5, verse 1, their hearts melted. They were greatly alarmed. They were scared. But they don't seem to be right now in this six-king coalition ready to wage war against Israel. They don't appear to be afraid at all. And it is truly... A remarkable turnaround in attitude and the disposition. Which, of course, raises the question, well, what's changed? Rahab tells them in chapter 2, they're, they're all afraid. They've heard of what your God has done. Joshua 5.1, they're afraid because they, they heard about Israel crossing the Jordan River on dry ground, and, and now they're not afraid. Verse 1 And the Jebusites heard of this. When all of them heard of this, the this, I think, most naturally is explained by referring to the first battle of Ai when Israel got their tails whooped. When they heard of that. It's now changed the attitude, changed the disposition of the Canaanite kings, and they're thinking, huh, Israel, maybe maybe they are human after all. Maybe we can beat them. If, if, the, if the one city of Ai can give them such a whooping back in chapter 7, then imagine what the six of us can do together as one against Israel. And of course, understanding what took place in chapter 7 at the first battle of Ai, the first battle of Ai brings our mind and our attention to what happened with Achan at Jericho when he took Valuables at Jericho in which God had given clear instruction, don't take anything. We're going to go into Jericho, don't take anything, nothing. Of course, he takes things, and as a result, God is furious with the people. 
and they get just their tails whooped at the first battle at Ai. Now, repentance has happened. Achan punished. In fact, it seems that God's disposition and favor has come back because in chapter seven, at the, or chapter eight, at the second battle of Ai, they're victorious. So, so what do we have here? Well, I think what we have here in these first two verses in Joshua chapter nine is a demonstration of the effects of sin. You say that happened two chapters ago. We got punished for that. Yeah. So God's not mad anymore. No. But what we see here are the lingering effects of sin. As a result of that first battle of Ai in which they just lost, the disposition, the attitude of the other kings in Canaan has changed. You say, man, that happened six months ago. I sought forgiveness. Like I repented. God brought me through that situation. Yes, but there may also still be lingering effects of that sin. And I can tell you from first-hand experience, I've, I've experienced the lingering effects of sin in my life and choices I've made from six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And not just where I felt some of those lingering effects ten years later, but where other people in my life, Diana and, and other people, also experienced some of the lingering effects of those choices I made a decade earlier. These first two verses of chapter 9 illustrate that. You say, man, that happened two years ago, or two months ago, or two chapters ago. Yeah. You say, I I sought forgiveness. Yeah. But there still may be lingering effects. Like ripples in a pond. You say, God's forgiven me. Yes, but, but that's what I think these verses illustrate. It demonstrates the effects of sin. It's like a virus. And even though we seek forgiveness, and even though God forgives us, there's oftentimes those aftershocks of it months and years later. And of course, it raises the, the other question. If we imagine if Achan hadn't at Jericho taken the valuable items that he wasn't supposed to take, that no one was supposed to take, would this be happening? Would these first two verses in chapter 9 be included? More to the point... Now we see Israel experiencing this opposition where before, I mean, people are basically like, yep, we're, like, like, yep we're, not, we're not doing that. We're afraid. We're scared. You see what happened at Jericho where they seemingly just didn't even do anything. God did everything. And you wonder, had Achan not sinned, might they have taken the rest of the Canaanite territory with the same minimum conflict that they had at Jericho? I think it's a real possibility. So not only do we see the lingering effects of sin in the opposition against them in these six kings that have now come together as a coalition, but we also see the opposite. Had they obeyed God, had Achan not taken anything of Jericho, I think we have to say, yes, that's certainly a possibility. That they probably could have rolled into Canaan and taken the land with minimal effort in the way that they did at Jericho. So that very much is the introduction to today's story a reminder of the devastating effects of sin even weeks, months, years later. Well, not everyone is going to respond like these six kings from the coalition. In fact, the stories 
sinners around some people who respond very differently. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, the second battle of Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, So now make a covenant with us. Gibeon was a a city that was not really too far away. Near Ai, maybe five miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. Pretty pretty close by. And yet, in verses 3 to 6, they go to these elaborate links to sell this story to the Israelites, to make it appear that they weren't from nearby, but rather that they were from really, really far away. They go to great lengths to do this. And in doing this, they reveal some knowledge of, I'd say some very extensive knowledge of Israelite laws. And that was a question that we came to in chapter 2 with Rahab. How does she know about the Israelite God? Well, however they know, their knowledge seems to be quite extensive. Because if you remember, Israel has been very clear when they come into the land, they have to destroy everyone in the land. Exodus 34, 11 to 12, Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 18, especially verses 15 to 18. When they come into the land, they got to wipe them out. And there's layers of answers and reasons for why they have to wipe everyone out. One of the big answers is uh, you have to wipe them out and you cannot enter into any covenants or agreements or treaties with them because the concern is, is that they're going to lead you away from God. You, you can't get into treaties or covenants with anyone that lives in the land that you're going to take. People outside the land, far away, that's totally fine. But nobody in the land. Why? Because I don't want you guys to get into a relationship with someone or get into a relationship with other people that will pull your heart away from me because relationships do that. Relationships pull your heart away from God. Whether it's romantic relationships or whether it's collective group relationships, that's the concern here. And the Gibeonites seem to have an extensive knowledge of what is allowed and what's not allowed when it comes to Israelite law, which is why they say, and go to such great lengths to say, oh, yeah, we're not from around here, when clearly they are from around here. And so they want a covenant, that is, a treaty, an agreement. And they travel to Gilgal. And you may remember Gilgal. That's where they had the massive circumcision ceremony. Gilgal, it was at Gilgal where the Lord said, Today I, I'm going to roll away the reproaches of Egypt. It was Gilgal, which means wheel. But it would seem strange that they would travel all the way back there, some 25 to 30 miles, to have this conversation with the Gibeonites. It's probably more likely this Gilgal actually is another Gilgal somewhere in the vicinity of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim from the previous passage. And, and this is probably supported, I would say, or at least justify in the fact that we know of three other Gilgals in Scripture, all of different locations. Of course, the first Gilgal from Joshua 4, Joshua 5, where they had that circumcision ceremony. The second Gilgal, a location north of Bethel in the hill country where Elijah and Elisha 
had been stained, 2 Kings 2.1, a third Gilgal between Jerusalem and Jericho in Joshua 15.7, and yet a fourth Jericho, excuse me, a fourth Gilgal, I think that's the Gilgal referring here, the same Gilgal that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 11.29-30. So that's where they travel. Most likely this is still very near proximity-wise where they were in the previous section of Scripture near Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. And they've come and they want this treaty. But the Israelites, they're not so sure about this. Something just isn't adding up. Sometimes you've had those conversations with people. You talk to someone, and someone just starts saying things, and it's like, hmm, I, I don't know. That's kind of weird. Like, why would you say that? That's, that seems strange. And, and despite them giving Israel all sorts of assurances, they're skeptical. And we see this in verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, now that's really interesting, Hivites, because the people from Gibeon, they haven't introduced themselves as Hivites. And this is significant because the Hivites, according to Exodus chapter 34, 11 to 12, Exodus 34, verse 11, De- Deuteronomy 20, 17, Joshua 3, 10, the Hivites are the people who are on the list to be knocked out. The Hivites, if you didn't see already, are mentioned in the first two verses. The Hivites are part of the coalition that's forming against them. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, so the narrator inserts this. The Israelites don't know that they're Hivites. The Gibeonites haven't introduced themselves as Hivites, but the narrator mentions this. He identifies them, even though they haven't done such, no doubt providing the reader his own evaluation of the situation, that yes, these Gibeonites are actually Hivites, and that's significant because they're Israel's enemies. And no treaty whatsoever should be made. Like, entering into a relationship with these people, not happening. And so, perhaps you live among us, verse 7? Well, then how could we make a covenant with you? Maybe you guys do live among us, but how would we know? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, and if you do live nearby, we definitely, absolutely cannot make any sort of agreement for any sort of relationship with you. And so the Gibeonites try to defuse the situation in verse 8. They said to Joshua, We're your servants. We're your servants. But Joshua, even himself, you can see by the language right there, he's skeptical. He's not sure about this either. He says, who exactly are you guys? Who exactly are you? And from where do you come from? Now, they've already said we come from a very distant place, right? They're being intentionally vague, intentionally ambiguous, not really coming forth, giving straight answers. And so, verse 9, they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Sounds good so far. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. It's interesting. So they're telling them about all the things they've heard God do, and yet they are collectively, or rather intentionally, only retelling the events from years ago, like when Moses would have been alive. Because we know, verse 3, throw verse 3 up. We know that they are aware of more recent events. They're aware of things that happened in the last weeks, months, at Jericho and at Ai. 
they make sure not to mention this whatsoever because if they mentioned it, Joshua and the Israelites would be like, okay, wait, that just happened like a few weeks ago. How would you know about that if you came from a distant land? So they're very, very intentional. They're very, very careful that they only mention uh, events that have happened but have happened a, a while ago. Nothing, nothing recent. You can see just how clever, how crafty they are in, in forming these lies which are somewhat truthful and yet not really so much. Kind of like the old saying, a good lie has a little bit of truth to it. And so they continue, verse 11, so the, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. Look, even these wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. That's the response. I'm sure they assume that the Israelites are going to ask, so they need to be able to come up with some sort of response. I mean, how do you argue with a worn-out pair of clothes that has holes in it? How do you argue with bread that's kind of moldy and dry and crumbly? It's like, okay, well, obviously, that, that I'm seeing that I can verify that. Which, of course, fits really nice into the story that they're telling, which is that they're from really, really far away. Of course, the truth is they're from really, really close by. So... There's a little bit of the dilemma that they're in. So verse 14 and 15 says this. So the men took some, that that is when it says, so the men, that's the men of Israel, took some of their provisions, that is the Gibeonites, but did not ask counsel from the Lord, 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Throw 14 back up. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. So this is what happens here. And, and I want to be clear, what I explain is bad and what I explain is good. They essentially come and they say, all right, we've heard your story. Like the old saying says, trust but verify. Trust but verify. You expect us to trust you? Okay, we're going to verify what you're saying. Let me see your bread. Hand over the bread. Let me see those sandals. Okay, what do you guys think? looks good. I mean, sandals are worn out. The bread's crumbly and dry. I wouldn't eat this. Okay. Well, I mean, it seems everything seems to check out. Okay. Now, that's not the issue. It's not that that was wrong. Okay. Like they are exercising wisdom. They are exercising discernment here in the same way you might say back in Joshua chapter seven at the first battle of AI, when Joshua sends his recon team out, the recon team comes back, gives them the report. They say, sir, Here's our evaluation of, here's our report. This is how we're evaluating the situation. We think we can take the city with 3,000 men. Now, even back in chapter 7 at the first battle of AI, that wasn't a bad thing to do to send out the recon team. Here, it's not a bad thing that they are verifying what the Gibeonites are saying. The problem is, is that's all they're doing. They're, they're missing a step, right? That they're missing a step in the process. And so they end up being deceived and they end up forming this agreement and this treaty with them. Why? Because as verse 14 says, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
They didn't ask counsel from the Lord. And while chapter 7 does not use this exact phrase, it seems to be heavily implied when you contrast chapter 7 with chapter 8, the first battle and the second battle of Ai. First battle of Ai, Joshua does all the, the smart things he should do in sending the recon team out to survey Ai. They come back, and yet we see that what seems to be very absent between those two battles in chapter 7 and chapter 8 is that there was no reliance on God, no seeking God's advice, no seeking God's counsel. Because in chapter 8, when they are victorious over this city, they don't so much as move or go anywhere until God says go or move. And then here, once again... It seems to be a very similar issue. And he actually states they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They took the test, failed it. Two chapters later, take the test, fail it again. Failing the same test twice. That stinks. It stinks when you fail a test. It really stinks when you fail the exact same test twice. And why? Well, I think at the root of this issue, at the heart of this is elements of pride. Now, the text doesn't tell us anything that you might think is the obvious issues, because pride's kind of sneaky and crafty. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized, rarely do you see situations where it says, all right, God, I got this because I'm awesome, and I'm going to go check out and verify everything that they, they said and see if their story is legit, so you just hang back there, because I'm super smart. That doesn't happen. And I'm not sure if that was even thoughts that crossed their minds. And sometimes it's not even thoughts that cross our minds. But as I said earlier, they missed a step in the process. It's not that they were in trouble because they went and verified to see when they took their provisions to see if everything checked out. It's just that afterwards, they missed a step in the process. I think it's a good thing what they did. It's just afterwards, they should have said, all right, well, everything checks out. Should we make the treaty? Let's ask God. Should we do this? Should we, should we enter in this relationship with him? Let's ask God. Because heaven forbid, maybe, maybe, just maybe, I missed something. Heaven forbid that maybe I overlook something. No, they think everything's good. They come, they assess the situation, and they don't think for one second that maybe, maybe they need to crunch the numbers one more time. Maybe they got something wrong. Maybe they overlooked something. See, what should have happened is, God, you tell us, like, God, should we enter into a treaty with them? We, we've looked at their provisions. We've heard their story. We're not really sure, but as best we can tell, everything checks out. But Lord, if there's something that maybe we've missed, that we've overlooked, Lord, make it clear to us. Do you want us to enter into this relationship with them or not? Because if you don't want to, if you don't want us to, and if that's going to be, be a bad thing, then show us. Make that clear, Lord. See, that was the step that they, that they missed. Very Proverbs 3, 5, and 6-like. Like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on, and I'll add, do not lean on exclusively your own understanding. I say exclusively because I think there's wisdom in sending a recon team out in chapter 7. There's wisdom in evaluating their provisions. But it's that they're trusting exclusively on their own understanding. And they don't bother to consult with God. They don't bother to even listen to God. They don't bother to seek the counsel of God. Yeah, I'll call that pride. Call it missing a big step in the process. I'll call it impatience. Impatience? Look at verse 16. So, they dot the I's, they cross the T's, they form this relationship with them, this covenant, this treaty, and then look what happens at verse 16. At the end of three days, 
Three days, guys. Oh, boy. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. All it took was three days. That's why I say pride and impatience. Had they just waited three days? Had they just consulted God? Like they they wouldn't be in this mess, and we're going to see in a few moments just what a huge mess this is. Very reminiscent, once again, of the story of Achan. Like, Achan took things that he wasn't supposed to take at Jericho. And had he just waited, had he just said, all right, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to trust God, I really want to take these valuable things, but I'll wait. As we already know, when they go into Ai, they are allowed to take the loot. Had he just waited, had they just waited, three days, I, this story reminds me of, don't make fun of me, but it reminds me of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And this is why. Because those cringeworthy moments, if you've ever seen the show where the person is handing out the roses and they give the rose to one of the villains. And usually the person handing out the roses, they don't know that the person's the villain. They don't know what's been happening like off camera or when they're not interacting with them. And then everything inside you is like, don't do it! Like, don't give them the rose! You don't know who they really are! They're not who you think they are! They're not who they say they are! They are not from where they say they're from. Don't do it! And then... The villain gets the rose. In this case, the villains get the rose. And had they just waited, three days after they get into this relationship, everything begins to come out. So yeah, I say pride. I say impatience. Got to have it right now. I've just waited so long for this, whatever this is. I'm not going to name this. That way it's more applicable to your own life. I'm tired of waiting. Here's an opportunity. I'm going to take it. Well, poop's about to hit the fan. Verse 17. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beoroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured and they complained against their leaders. 19, but all the leaders said to the congregation, guys, here's the situation. We've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. Like, this isn't just an agreement. Note, this is not just an agreement we made with them, but we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, that we won't touch them. Echoing verse 18, because the leaders of the congregation have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 20, this we will do. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. We're going to let them live. We're going to let them live lest God's wrath be upon us. 
even though this relationship, this covenant, this treaty was formed under false pretenses, can't be revoked. Very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 27, the story Jacob Esau sells his brother uh, the birthright for a bowl of soup. And then, of course, in Genesis 27, you see him go to his father Isaac and pretend to be his brother. Pretend to be his brother. And of course, once he blesses Jacob, once Isaac blesses Jacob, it can't be revoked. They can't revoke this. They can't nix this. And the people are mad. The people are grumbling. The people are murmuring. Why? Because the decisions that the leaders made now have affected them negatively. Why do we pray for our leaders every Sunday when we gather? Because our leaders need prayer. You're not praying for our leaders? You're wrong. You're disobeying Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, first one, two, three verses there. Like, leaders need prayer. I, I need prayer. I need prayer. Why? Because... Uh, like Joshua at times and the other leaders here make bad decisions. In the last five years at Lynchburg City Church, like I've made decisions I wish, eh, I'd go back and I'd say that differently or I'd do that differently. As much as Joshua is praised throughout the story, throughout the Bible, like here, he and the other leaders, they made an impulsive, impatient, prideful decision. And the people are mad. Because the people want to kill the Gibeonites. They want blood. They want to slaughter them. And here we meet, this is where we meet, rather, this is where wisdom meets foolishness in these verses that we just read. This is where wisdom is going to meet foolishness. And I say it like that. I say it that way specifically because we're aware of the, the foolishness. We're aware of the pride, the impatience, the impulsivity on the part of the leaders, on the part of Joshua to enter into this relationship, this treaty, this covenant. But yet there is wisdom in exercising what we see here, in exercising restraint. They just were ripped off. They just entered into this agreement under false pretenses. And if I was them, I would want to find whatever way I could to say, we need to nix this and then slaughter them all. Nix this and then kill all of them. Like, I would be furious right now. Like, they took advantage of us. We asked them multiple times, and they lied their butts off to us. I want heads! I feel used. I feel misled. Well, that's how they feel. But this is where foolishness meets wisdom, because notice what the leaders say. Verse 19 but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest, now here's the key word, lest wrath be upon us. Lest the wrath of God be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Because we didn't just make a promise to them, we made a promise to God and before God. It wasn't just, I'm promising you this, but like we're forming this, this covenantal relationship, this treaty with them. And they say, we're not going to touch them. And there's, I think, real wisdom here because we see in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, King Saul he kills some of the Gibeonites in violation of this oath. And as a result, God brings famine upon the land. That's 2 Samuel 21, 1. And, and this is the wisdom the people are exercising. 
As much as we want to nix this agreement, we can't. Let God's wrath be poured among us. And it, I think, reveals today the culture that we live in, in which promises are not taken with any type of worth. In which covenants that are made are just as easily nixed. Just as easily nixed when covenants are made today. That's the culture we live in. I give you two examples of what I'm talking about. One is more corporate and one is more individualistic, but both regard to, I think, covenants that we make with God. My mom calls me up and she says, yep, two more families at her church are leaving. She goes to a, she's a part of a, a part of a, part of a smaller church, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger than LCC when, when school's in session here. Uh, maybe like 100 people, 100, 125 people. There's two more families left. I was like, oh, were they members? Yeah. Well, that sucks. And, uh, and of course, I'm thinking, well, why they leave? Because maybe they're moving out of state or something. Um, or maybe, I mean, that's the obvious one. Maybe the pastor is in some type of unrepentant sin. Or, you know, there's, you know, there's some egregious issue. Rarely is that the issue. Um, no, the pastor said some things that they didn't like, so they left. Were they biblical? Yeah, he said biblical things. I just didn't like it. I think it had to do with, in that specific case, LGBTQIA issues, just being faithful to the text. Peace now, right? So they're covenant members, right? They made a promise to the people around them and before God to not just love God, serve God, worship God, but also love and serve the people around them. Yes, okay. Well... I don't feel like anymore, so just peace out, right? Or counseling a girl, did her wedding. I've done about one wedding a year for the last six years. Counseling a girl, did her did her wedding, and some of you guys have heard part of the story. She's leaving her husband. She's mad. She's furious, and, and honestly, probably has a right to be mad and furious with some of the things that that I found out and she shared. But I don't think any grounds for biblical divorce, and I told her that. So I got it. You're, you're mad. I'd be mad too. And so I said, but you made a promise. And it wasn't just to him. It was a promise before God. Okay? Like, I don't care whether it's like, like a church covenant and saying, I'm gonna, these people are going to be my brothers and sisters in the faith and we're going to worship God and I'm going to serve and love them. Or whether it's a covenant that you make with another person. Like, you made that. Well, it didn't really count. What do you mean it didn't really count? I replied, didn't really count. I was standing right there. I was officiating the wedding. Well, I didn't really mean You seem like you meaned it in that moment. So what happened? Well, like, I didn't mean it in my heart. Uh-huh, I see. Um, you're wrong. <laughs> like, you're wrong. And that's the thing. Like, I always tell people, and some of you guys have read that amazing Gospel Coalition uh, uh, article, that covenants, covenants are made for the the... The hard times, not the good times. In the good times, you can get by emotions and, and hype and energy and feelings all on your own. The covenants are made for those really, really hard times. And oh, by the way, in both examples, the people at my mom's church and the woman that I was counseling who left her husband, none of those situations involved what they're going through. Like in both of those situations, the people leaving the church or the woman leaving her husband, they were not, or they did not enter into that covenant under false pretenses. 
In other words, like if anybody had a reason to be upset and mad and have a reason to like get out of this agreement, this promise that they made, it would be these people. That's where I say this is where foolishness meets wisdom. Because what do the leaders say? The leaders have screwed up. Joshua's messed up. But they say, we're not going to make another problem. We're in it. We're going to honor God's word. Because the promise, the promise wasn't just made to the Gibeonites. The promise was also made before God. That's the significance of that. And most people don't value what covenants mean and what covenants are all about. So no, we're not going to nix this. Even though we were led into entering under false pretenses. So, verse 21, And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us? Why did you do that? Saying that we're from very far away when you dwell among us. Verse 23, Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never, some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. Why would you do this? My mom told me from the time when I was a little boy, when people are afraid, they're more prone, it seems, to do things like this. They're more prone to they get into fear and they're afraid, and so they they lie. And that seems to very much be how they're feeling based on the next passage. 24. They answered Joshua because it was told to your servants for for certain. For certain. Like it was going to happen. Like for a certainty. The Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants. That would include us. Like of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And, And we did this thing. We did this thing. Sometimes we feel like compelled to have to do that. And yet, I got to think that had they responded the way Rahab in chapter 2, had they just come and thrown thrown themselves at the mercy of Joshua and the Israelites from the very beginning, and the way Rahab did, there would have been no need to concoct this whole plan to deceive Israel. But they did. And i got to be honest, I'm really proud of their response here. I'm really proud of this response. They've been found out. They messed up. They were foolish. And so look what they say. 25. And now behold, Joshua, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. We'll take our licking. Whatever you think is a fair punishment, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, these people have a, they don't have like a high church uh, background. And by high church, a high church exposure. These people are pretty pagan. And yet they're more mature than I would say most of our elected leaders and officials. Yep, we messed up. We'll take whatever punishment you think is fair. So, so Joshua says this, 26, So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel 
and they did not kill him. That's interesting because Joshua, you remember his name, Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers. Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers, and it's Joshua who will be the deliverer for the Gibeonites. And the fact that it says, and they did not kill them, he delivered them out of the hand of the people, it seems Joshua, if it wasn't for Joshua, the people of Israel were ready to say, we're nicks in this agreement, right? We're done. And we're going to come and take their heads. And Joshua says, it's not happening. It's not happening. So Joshua becomes deliverer and the savior for the Gibeonites. He upholds the covenant that they made with the people. You say covenants are made for the really bad times, the hard times, because on the good times you can get by with the energy and the motivation and the hype and the feelings. It's made for the bad times. If there was ever a bad time, it's right now. Man. So he is their deliverer and he is their savior. And then 27, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. We fast forward to after the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah 3.7, Nehemiah 7.25. They're back. And if you know Nehemiah, it's the story of rebuilding the walls. And in both those passages, chapter 3-7, chapter 7-25, the Gibeonites are included, working right along the Israelites, repairing the walls after the return from the Babylonian exile. And they appear to have been fully assimilated among the Jews just as much as any other believer in Israel's God, just as much as Rahab, just as much as any other foreign converts. In fact, you go to Joshua 18-25 and Gibeon would be part of Benjamin's tribal inheritance. You go to Joshua 21, 17, Gibeon would be apportioned as a Levitical city. That's a big deal. I'd be like saying, we're bringing an Apple store to Lynchburg. You only bring Apple stores to really like cool places, except like times that much more. Like they're apportioned as a Levitical city. Gibeon, after everything they did? Yeah, because this story is, just a, is, is not just about Gibeon. The Gibeonites. Because at the end of the day, chapter 9 is about God. And like the Gibeonites, we have, and we said this last week, we have found ourselves on the outside looking in. There was a time in our lives in which we were haters of God, enemies of God, even our minds were hostile to God. There was a time in our lives when we were not walking with God as we should, living in open rebellion to the king. Like the Gibeonites lying our butts off, doing whatever we had to do, stepping on whoever we had to step on, living life for ourselves. That's it. You see the story's about God? Yeah. Because the Gibeonites, once again, are used here in this story as an illustration of His grace. You think about the grace that you've received in your own life? Here are the Gibeonites, right? Serving as this illustration, both of God's grace, that He is a good and He's a loving God, but also He's a just God. Like, I don't care whether you're ethnically Jewish and He's going to punish you like Achan, whether you're like the Gibeonites, He's going to punish you. And yet, afterwards, He is there to embrace His people. And I'm thankful for God's God's grace, for God's irresistible grace, especially as we see non-ethnic 
non-ethnically Israelites, like we see Gibeonites, and it makes me think of us, because I imagine most of us today, we're not ethnically Jewish, and to think that God, like, had that plan for us, that, that worked us into the plan, like, even though the Gibeonites really fumbled this up, and they probably just should have been honest from the very beginning, and they, and they weren't, and thinking about how that applies, like, to our own life, and how God's been so gracious to us, like, despite our failures, despite all the times that we messed up, and the Gibeonites messed up here, he's there, Right? For anyone who comes. Not on, on, on your own terms, but you come on God's term, then you can say, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. You come on God's term, I don't care whether you're Gibeonites, whether you're Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, it doesn't matter. Like, you come. I don't know how many times you've messed up, lied your butt off. You come, and there is hope, and there is grace, and seeing how Gibeon is just welcomed really in as the, the covenant people of God, just as much as the ethnically covenant people of God. is good news. This story illustrates God's grace. Even in lieu of abusing it, it illustrates the punishments for sin. It illustrates needing to consult God, right? It illustrates, like, depending upon our own, exclusively our own understanding, our own wisdom. It illustrates the, the lingering effects of sin. It illustrates a ton. Well, I'm thankful for chapter 9. I'm thankful for the story of the Gibeonites where we see foolishness meet wisdom. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for what you've done, for what you are doing. You are a good, a gracious God, even when we mess up. Help us to be mature like the Gibeonites, willing to accept our consequences. Lord, help us to understand like the importance of obedience to you, not just in, in dealing with the, the consequences, but sometimes the lingering effects that sin have months or years later. Help us to obey in all things. To understand that your way is better. To see your way as, as, as better. Lord, help us to avoid prideful pitfalls where we try to exclusively lean on our own understanding and situations. Help us to be humble enough to say, you know what, maybe, I, maybe I'm missing something here, God. Show me. Show me if I'm off course. Help us, Jesus. We need you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.